Is there anybody else here today that's prone from time to time um, to develop less than an ideal attitude with respect to life and people and circumstances? Is there anybody in the house along with the pastor this morning that has ever needed an attitude adjustment upside of the head? Amen. Well, we all have. Um, Judy calls them low light moments. And we all have, you know, when my kids were little, we'd gather around the dinner table, which we made a point to do as often as we could. And that's where we unpacked the day. And one of the exercises when my kids were young, when they'd get home from school at the dinner table, I would encourage them to give me a highlight of the day, uh, a low light of the day, and the middle of the road light of the day. And they got used to that. It was always my way of kind of being involved in their life and kind of, they would unpack it. You know, they would tell me, here's a good thing that happened. Here's a tough thing that happened. And the thing about it is they didn't have to think very long about the hard things that happened at school or things that were at least difficult for them. But you know, the older we get, sometimes the more complicated life becomes and the more challenging the challenges tend to become. And there are lots of people, many of whom you may have known throughout your life, that have unfortunately come to the conclusion where they're just not sure life is even worth living at all. There have been a lot of people that I've known who've come to that point in life. And let me just make a confession here today. There's never been a time in my adult life when I've ever uh, wanted to die. But there have been a lot of days where I would have been perfectly okay if Christ came on and came again. You know what I'm saying? That'd have been okay that Jesus would have come, raptured me right out in the middle of whatever mess I was in at the moment. I would have been perfectly okay with that. Solomon doesn't say it so much in those words, but it's that kind of thing that's on his mind. As our preacher, our ecclesiastes, as Solomon is, continues to unpack the meaning of life as he ponders the meaning of life in the latter stages of his life. Let's notice what he says here in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 as we're going to wax for a few minutes on the subject, a life worth living. Solomon says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. So he begins on a negative bent. He's focusing on things that are far less than ideal. I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On their side of, uh, or on the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. So here we go again. Solomon is listening to the carpenters on a Monday morning when it's pouring down rain. You all know what I'm saying? And, you know, as I read these words, I find them a rather strange thing for a king to say, Uh, Because kings don't usually notice the plight of peons, do they? Solomon is noticing the oppressed here, something kings don't normally do. Those of you that are in the house this morning who have a modicum of understanding about Solomon's life are aware that Solomon himself uh, was known to have oppressed a lot of people. 
I mean, Solomon built the temple and Solomon built his palace with pretty much all slave labor. And to get the job done and to pay for it and to keep the balanced budget of the nation sound, he exercised exorbitant tax rates over the people of Israel in order to get the job done. And so as I read this, sometimes I'm wondering if Solomon is not thinking back over the annals of some of his own life and maybe a wave of guilt here as he nears the end of his life is starting to wash over him concerning how he himself had mistreated a lot of people along the way. Regardless, it's pretty common for people to think um, like James Stewart in It's a Wonderful Life, it would have been better if I had never been born at all. And thankfully, as Solomon dialogues through the perplexities of life, he arrives at a positive conclusion. Namely, as the old Gaither song says, Solomon will eventually arrive at the conclusion, life is worth the living just because he lives. And we know that to be true, of course, for us because of Jesus Christ. You remember Jesus said in the Gospel of John, because I live, you will what? You will live also. That's right. And that's the source of the hope that keeps you and me going, especially in challenging, difficult times. Life is worth the living just because He lives. And throughout this text this morning, as we're going to take it a little bit section by section, Solomon's going to give us three ways that will help ensure that we see life as something indeed worth living. And these are three things that you and I need to learn uh, to develop, three very important life dispositions to arrive at the conclusion life is not always perfect, but life is a really good deal, and we can live in such a way to enjoy it and to be blessed in it. The first thing that Solomon would remind us is that to do that, we need to first of all learn contentment. Part of the reason that so many of us check out on life is because we just simply haven't learned to be content with the blessings of God. We haven't learned to be content with the station that we're at in life or how God has chosen to bless us or where God has chosen to place us or the opportunities that God either has or has not chosen to open before us. Solomon again jumps into a discussion about his impression of life in the working world here in verse number four. Then I saw all the toil and all skill in work come from a man's what? Envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and a striving after the wind. Now let me make a couple of observations about work itself and life in the workaday world. That's something that most all of us have to uh, endure throughout life. The Bible would clearly teach us that work is not an evil thing. We tend to couch it in terms of the negative, but work is a very positive thing <clears throat> from the perspective of God's Word. And it's positive because it's couched in terms of a gift from God. There are lots of people who think mistakenly, I believe, that work came as a result of the, uh, of the fall. In other words, because of the first man, the first woman's sin in the garden, God then cursed them with having to work. But Adam worked the garden long before he fell in the garden. Does everybody understand that? God gave Adam good work to do. And it was positive. It was something that was enjoyable to Adam. Uh, and so work came well before the fall. It was a joy. It was not a burden. But the fall changed all of that. Uh, with the onset of sin, uh, work became toilsome. It became something that we didn't enjoy, something that we just had to endure, something that we did not like. 
And that's been true now for centuries and centuries. You poll most people, you're going to find that most people really are not satisfied with what they do in life. They find what they do in the workaday world something of a drudgery, something that doesn't provide lasting fulfillment or lasting satisfaction. Most people would say, if I could, I would do this. And it would have nothing to do with what they're currently doing. For most people, it tends to be all about the paycheck. And that's why people buy the droves, go to the grocery store, and the first thing that they buy is not a jug of milk or a, a carton of eggs or a loaf of bread. It's a lottery ticket at the lottery counter. It's why so many people go to Biloxi or to Vegas or to Atmore uh, or why they fill out the Publishers Clearinghouse. Do they still send Publishers Clearinghouse anymore? Is that an outdated illustration? You know, you, see, you get it in the mail and you fill it. Why? Because you want to get rich quick and then you want to get out. Get rich quick, make it quick, and then get out and live life. You ought to see the stories of the people that get rich quick. They go through that stuff like a hot knife through butter most of the time. They end up in a worse situation than they were at the beginning. And then when people do find some degree of satisfaction in their work, when they do hard charge in their jobs, it often has nothing to do with pleasing the boss or making a valuable contribution to the company or making a valuable contribution to the community or to the world. When people do hard charge most of the time, it's to be able to keep up materially with their friends and the people that they know. Our world is full of people like that. Joneses trying to keep up with other Joneses, right? Or Locks trying to keep up with other Locks whatever the case might be. We envy, Solomon says. We envy. That's the operative word here. We're jealous of what other people have. And we perceive that they have a better life than we do. And they're enjoying life more than we're enjoying it. So that's why we work. We work or we connive or we steal in order to get what they have that we think we need in order to be happy in this life. And this, by the way, can I just say is an important reason why in the Big Ten, those things we call the Ten Commandments, right there at the very bottom, God gives us commandment number 10, which says very simply, thou shalt not what? Thou shalt not covet. And you know why I think it ends up being at the very end of the list, because it's an apt summary of the first nine put together. When we break one of the first nine, usually number 10 is the root cause at the center of our heart. And that's why the Bible makes it very clear. Thou shalt not covet, because that kind of thing, the use the old antique language, covetousness serves as the motivation as to why we typically have trouble keeping the other nine. The solution to this is not to give up on work. And to recognize work inherently is not a bad thing, it's a good thing. Solomon says in verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Now that sounds a bit unsettling, doesn't it? But that's just a <laughs> kind of a descriptive way of saying if you make a decision to be lazy with your life and do nothing at all, you're going to end up destroying your life. And that's true. There are ruinous consequences whenever a person refuses to work. Now, we tend to be more familiar with the New Testament language from the Apostle Paul who says in 2 Corinthians 3, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not what? See, I told you, it's more familiar. If a man doesn't work, the Bible says, then he ought not to eat. 
No, Solomon's solution to the rat race, which is a race that really is not always winnable, is not to just bail out on life. It's not to bail out on work. His solution is found in verse number six here of this text. Better is a handful of what? Say it out loud. Quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. So notice the spectrum that Solomon is drawing here for us because at the one end of the spectrum you have all this toil and striving. That's in verse number four. At the other end you have laziness and do-nothingness. That's in verse number five. But then we get to verse six and we find that Solomon brings us right back to the middle. And the operative word there is not toil or striving and it's not laziness. You just said it out loud. What's the operative word for a life worth living? It's what? Quietness. That's right. And the idea there is you could substitute any number of words for quietness. One of the good ones that you could substitute is the word satisfaction. Or to be more germane to the point that I'm trying to make here, contentment. That's the key. The key is to learn contentment with where you are in life, what you're doing in life, and what you make in life. We were designing a bumper sticker. It might read, no contentment, no peace. That's what Solomon's trying to say. Because a life without contentment is usually a very dissatisfied life. It's a life that stays stirred up all the time. There's always something else to grab, something that you don't have, something else to be unsettled about, something else to be jealous concerning your neighbor about or upset with them about because they've been blessed in a way that's superior to the way you perceive that God has blessed you. And if you're taking notes this morning, write down another word, and that is the word comparison because comparison is our great enemy here. I mean, think about it. Here's the richest man in the then known world writing these words, and he's on the rooftop shouting it as loudly as he can. Y'all need to trust me on this because I've got more money than I can possibly spend, and money's not going to buy you a moment's worth of happiness. Trust me on this, Solomon says. Simple is better than complicated. Less, most of the time, is better than more. Because he learned a valuable truth about life, namely this, it's very difficult to steer a straight course when both hands are full and grasping for more all the time. How many of y'all are like me and you're driving down the interstate and you see people driving a car with a cheeseburger in one hand and a cell phone in the other? And I can't see it, but they probably got a big gulp sweet tea between their legs. And it's like, how are y'all driving that car? Get me out of here. I'm not sure whether it'd be safer to be in front of them or even behind them. Most of the time, probably the latter. But you see people all the time on highways trying to eat, drink, and drive or put on makeup or a combination of all four all at the same time. But that is not safe. We know it's not safe, yet we do it anyway, not even considering that it might end up killing us in the end. It's a recipe for disaster. Look what the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 6. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. 
Now, that's just a super simple lifestyle there because Solomon doesn't even, I mean, uh, Paul doesn't even mention shelter there. He just says food and clothing, period. And if we have those two things, even though shelter is probably implied in that, we will learn to be content. What we want to be is like Jesus. Somebody say amen this morning. Jesus didn't live it up in life. I mean, he did live it up in life. He had a great time in life, I believe. But he built his life on all the right things. Jesus was anything but idle. Jesus was anything but lazy. But neither was he driven by envy of anything anybody else that he knew actually had. Here was a Lord who stayed busy. He lived simply. He found time for quiet and personal reflection and refreshment. And he was content with what he had. Best we can tell, the day Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross, the only thing that Jesus owned were the clothes on his back. That was it. This was a man that knew how to be content with the simplest of things in life. And this is Solomon's point. Life is worth the living, but it's worth living for those who learn the secret of contentment. And if you don't learn that, you'll probably have a hard time enjoying the life God has given you. Everybody with me so far, say amen. Learn contentment. But then a second thing Solomon would add for a life that's worth living is to remain teachable. To remain teachable. This is, I think, a very important reminder because it's an important reminder to me. Because I'm a guy that's always loved learning. I've been reading, you know, for, for years. I've always enjoyed reading. More of a closet introvert than anything else. I never want to be a person who's not teachable, who's never consistently continuing to learn, who never comes to the point in his life where I've determined that I've arrived, that I've learned all I need to know in life, and there's nothing else to learn, nothing else to know, nothing else to develop. Look at verse 13. Solomon says, Better was a poor and a wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Now, I'm wondering if he's thinking about himself there, or if he's just making a potent analogy. We'll never really know for sure, but he was probably thinking about himself, I think, because what he does here is he gives us this definite contrast between young and old and wise and foolish. And here's the point. He's not saying that all young people are wise and all old people are foolish. And he's not saying all old people are wise and all young people are foolish. The point that Solomon's making is that one is wise and one is foolish, not because one is young or one is old, but because one remains teachable and the other does not. Everybody with me? That's what makes for a wise person. And it doesn't matter whether you're young or old. Because let me tell you something, as a guy that's been around the block a time or two in life, stubbornness and bullheadedness is no respecter of age. Amen. I've worked with young men and young women, cocksure of everything. In fact, I've met many young men and women so cocksure of themselves, I was pretty sure they'd autograph their own Bible. But I've also worked and served with many a gray-haired person. Just as proud, had everything figured out, unwilling to change, couldn't tell them anything. 
What makes a person wise and foolish has nothing to do with age. It has everything to do with teachability, a willingness to never stop learning. Solomon tells us a story beginning in verse 14 that amplifies the point. It's kind of a rags to riches story about a man, verse 14, a man who went from prison to the throne. Though in his own kingdom he had been born poor, I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. One thing we can probably know for sure is that Solomon is definitely not talking about himself right there because his was anything but a rags to riches story. I mean, Solomon was born in the palace. He was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. To me, this sounds a lot like Joseph, amen. Joseph, who went from the prison to the palace only to then die and ultimately be forgotten by pharaohs that came generations after him but regardless of who's on Solomon's mind, the, I mean, the, one of the lessons is that fame is fleeting. Everybody's replaceable. Did y'all hear me? I mean, everybody's replaceable. We don't like to hear that because most people like to think that they're totally indispensable to their business, to their company, to their school, to their church. But the truth is, nobody is. Fame is fleeting. I mean, even the most famous people burn for a while like a meteor, and then they flame out, and they're gone and it doesn't take very long for them not to even be remembered anymore. Leaders come and leaders go, and they're always replaced, and the organization keeps right on going. It never collapses like we think that it's going to. And this is why Solomon calls many of his own life's pursuits a chasing after the wind. Because I think as he reflects on history as he knew it, and as he reflected on his own station in life, he kind of was beginning to think that that very thing was going to happen to him. I mean, he's looking behind him. He's already made this remark earlier in the book of Ecclesiastes that there are others after he dies that are going to inherit everything that he has built up. And who knows if they're going to maintain it or if they're going to push it toward additional progress or if they're going to make very foolish choices and the whole thing collapse down to the ground and that's what he's doing he sees all these young guns behind him and he realizes that one of these days soon and very soon it'll all be over and he'll end up walking away he'll end up with a party and a slice of grocery store cake with a plastic fork and maybe the people in the kingdom will give him a nice gold pen set and then everybody will cheer him on for a few minutes. And after about 45 minutes, everybody will look at their watch and they'll say, okay, what's next? What are we doing tonight? And he says it in verse 16. Those who come after him will not rejoice in him. Fame is fleeting. Fame is fleeting. And this is why, brothers and sisters, I think it's very important that we learn to live intentionally and on purpose, not so much for future legacy, though that's not altogether to be jilted, but I don't think it's primary. 
We don't live for future legacy. We're to live in the kingdom of God for present impact, to make a difference today. I have written in my Bible a statement from the old Moravian preacher Zinzendorf, who in the 17th century used to teach his young men in training, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. And I've got that written in my Bible, learning to be okay with that, with the understanding that within two or three generations, nobody's going to remember who I am. I mean, I wonder what percentage of people in here could name one former pastor at Hillcrest. One. I mean, there'd be a handful, but there wouldn't be a majority, I'm pretty sure, anymore. There's some people in this church can't even name the present pastor of Hillcrest, much less the pastor. (laughs) Listen, I've run into people more than once in the grocery store. Hey, this is my pastor. This is Brother Jim. What was your last name again? Can't even tell you who the present pastor is. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten, which is not a bad way to live life. Work hard at the mill, die, and be forgotten. Work hard at the doctor's office, die, and be forgotten. Let your legacy be a legacy that you made much of Jesus Christ, that there are people who are living now in the kingdom because of you. Not so much that there are other people that became better in their profession because of you, though that's not a bad thing. But an even better thing is to leave a lasting legacy for the Lord Jesus Christ that continues to pave the way for his coming in glory one day. And that's the reason that's so important for us as Christian people to learn to remain teachable in the kingdom of God Not so that we can leave a legacy, but so that we can make the most demonstrable impact in this world today. That's really what a Christian is. If you don't know what a Christian is, you can't be a Christian without being a disciple, and you can't be a disciple without being a learner. Everybody tracking with me? A Christian is really a disciple who's a continual learner about the things that matter most, particularly concerning the kingdom and about the person and work of Jesus Christ. So God help us to all keep learning and to keep stretching and to be pliable and to be moldable and never to stop growing in our understanding of God, in our understanding of his word, in our understanding of what it means to be kingdom citizens awaiting the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what makes for a life that's worth living. It means you learn contentment. It means you learn to remain teachable. And then finally, it means that you learn to value relationships because there really is no such thing as a contented life lived in total isolation. We talk a lot around around, uh, Hillcrest about the value of connecting in relationships. It's one of our critical core values. We're people who worship God and connect with others and who serve the world. And the words of Solomon here, beginning in verse 9, about the subject of connecting with others as part of a valuable life are some of the most familiar words, really, in the whole book of Ecclesiastes. Let's begin reading in verse number 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, and yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are 
never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is broken, two will withstand him. And then the summary statement, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, how many of y'all have heard that statement before? Raise your hand. How many of y'all heard that statement at a wedding before? Amen. Let's come back to that here in just a second. But Solomon's reasoning is simply this. If you spend all your time and all your energy working to make money and to keep up with the Joneses, and suppose you have everything that your neighbor has, maybe even more than your neighbor has. What good is all that work if you've never made any friends in the process? If you're left to just enjoy it all by yourself, you don't have anybody to share any of your successes with. Solomon's point is it's not even worth the journey if that's the case. And yet, I read just a couple of days ago something that just flashed up on my newsfeed. I wasn't even looking for it. I think the Lord put it there. It's a survey that just came out a week or so ago from the Survey Center on American Life on the very subject of friendships in the United States of America and how people are becoming more isolated with every passing year. I wish you could see the whole results. If you want it, email me. I'll send it to you. But here's the bottom line. In 2021, most current data, 15% of American men confess to having not one close friend. 15%. You know what that percentage was like in 1990? It's like 2%. Only 2% in 1990 of American men confess to having no friend. In 2021, 15%. And 10% of women confess to not having one close personal friend which like for a woman is a really big deal because they tend to like connect in relationships much more efficiently than men do. In fact, that percentage for women in 1990, if I'm remembering correctly, was less than 1%. Every woman had friends in 1990. One out of 10 today have no friend at all. And man, I'm telling you, that's, that, doesn't, that doesn't portend well for the future of the United States. Solomon would call that vanity of vanities. And an unhappy business. That's his language here in chapter 4. No, God's already said it. We need, what we need is to get back to the Bible here. Because it was God who said, it is not good for the man to be what? Alone. Now, I know he's saying that in the context of marriage, but it's true across the board. God doesn't design us to live life as isolated lone rangers. Personally, or spiritually, either one. We need to walk together. Christianity is about together life, as we've said many times. And everybody understands that, from rock climbers to scuba divers to people in the infantry. Every one of those are familiar with what's known as a buddy system. 
And it is a general truth. This is what Solomon's trying to communicate. The general truth is that community is better than isolation. To use Solomon's language, two are better than what? Are better than one. Two are better than one. Two are better than one when it comes to work, Solomon says. And I know that when we say that, I know what some of y'all are thinking. Preacher, you don't know the kind of people I work with every day. No, the, it's, it's not the specific principle. It's the general principle that we have in mind here. I get all of that. But generally speaking, two people working on a job together tend to be more productive than one person doing it alone. I know at my house that's true when we do the dishes. Somebody say amen. Two are better than one. Uh, two are better than one. I don't get up on the roof anymore. In fact, some people tell me I ought not get up on the roof at all, but I'm still feeling awful manly when I do it. But I don't get on a ladder if I'm home by myself. I don't do it. <clears throat> two are better than one. When it comes to cleaning out the gutters, can I have an amen? This is the general principle that Solomon has made. Two are better than one when it comes to work. They're more efficient. They're more productive, generally speaking. Two are better than one in times of trouble. Solomon says. There are times, sometimes you just need backup. Y'all remember the commercial of the woman fell down and she's got that thing on her neck that goes right to the dispatch center. Please help me. I've fallen and I can't get up. Two are better than one in times of trouble. And listen, whether or not it's like that lady, that's going to be you if it hadn't happened already. There are going to be times that you fall and you're going to have a hard time picking yourself back up all alone. It may not even be a very old you. It may be a very young you that falls and can't get yourself back up. Because would you not agree with me that life is hard and life will knock you down from time to time? And if you've got nobody around you, you might just go down and you might just stay down. And that, brothers and sisters, is why community is so very important. You need people around you. You need people that love you. Just yesterday, I was looking at a lengthy prayer list. It comes from one of our connect groups here at Hillcrest. I'm on the, the mailing list, and I get that. That's actually very helpful for me because I become aware of stuff on there that I don't become aware any other way. And I was reading down through that, and I, saw, I thought, how blessed these people are to have this outlet for people to know what's going on in their life and to come and to serve them and to bless them and to support them and to help them and most importantly, to pray for them. But the best part of doing life together is that when you do it with one another, you can do it in the family of God. And that's when relationships become the best of all. When they're done within the context of God's family in the context of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says here, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. The NIV says a cord of three strands is not easily broken. And three are always better than two when it's the Lord who's that third person. Somebody say amen. Now let me just say, uh, in order to be a careful exegete of the Bible. I'm not sure that that's exactly what's first on Solomon's mind when he's writing this. Solomon is not thinking about God in this passage of Scripture as being the third strand. He's making a point that sometimes we refer to as the principle of greater strength with greater numbers. Generally speaking, Solomon says, if two are better than one, generally three are better than two. 
And there are times when the more people we have gathered around us in a particular task or in a particular situation, the better off that we are. So we often use this verse in weddings, but as Solomon uses it, he's really not thinking about people getting married here. Because in marriage, truth be told, to keep it consistent with what Solomon is saying, two are better than three in a marriage relationship. Unless the third one is the Lord. And that's applicable here, even though it's not what's on Solomon's mind, it is absolutely applicable because you see that principle all throughout the rest of the Bible. But in order to have these kinds of healthy relationships, we've got to walk in agreement. And that's why the presence of the Lord in Christian relationships is always a necessary third strand. It's what turns good relationships into great relationships. And that is true in your marriage. And that is true as you parent your children. And that is true in your friendships. And that is true in your business associations. The only way to walk in unity is to walk together in agreement. And that always means walking together in the spirit of the living God. So we come back to the question that was raised at the very beginning with all of that as the backdrop. Is life worth living? And Solomon's answer is a resounding what? Absolutely, it is. But there are some valuable things that you need to learn and understand in order to consistently live that way. You learn contentment. You learn the value of learning. And you learn the critical nature of engaging in healthy, dynamic Christian relationships with others and most especially with the risen Savior who is Jesus Christ. The old song says it well and it's absolutely spot on. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know who holds the future. Life is worth the living just because Christ lives. That's a good place for an amen. Can you say it this morning? Amen.